against children and animals, which some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion advised. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And let's do a proper Patreon shout out, shall we? Okay, okay. A proper shout out. We have Emily, Taylor, Crystal, and Amy. We love each and every one of you. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. It means the world to us, and we hope that you enjoy ad-free listens and some of our older episodes. Now, this week's episode is part one, so join us next week for the rest of the details. Now, this case happened in 2019 in the lovely town of Celebration, Florida, which was created by Disney, which is something that I just learned while doing this case. So it's a special place where only the truest Disney fans live. And basically, it's a perfect little town where nothing bad happens. But as we know as true crime fans, crime happens everywhere. And something interesting I found while looking into this case The house where this outrageous murder of this family happened is up for sale. So if you're interested, it's only $900,000 and it has a pool. I kind of feel like this house should be knocked down, but who am I? And if you missed the first warning, here is your second warning. Before you proceed with the listening of this episode, it's a hard one to listen to. It's dark. It's evil. It was even hard for me to talk as I was recording. The content explains the deaths of children who all should be here right now going to their first day of school, their mother and their family dog. So before you listen to this week's episode of Crime Salad with the family during a road trip, this probably isn't a good one to listen to. But if you think you can handle it, Let's jump in. On December 29, 2019, Chrissy Caplett called the Osceola County Sheriff's Office to request a well check on her brother Anthony Tote and his family. Chrissy, her mother, and sister were concerned because they hadn't heard from the family for weeks. And Anthony told them that the entire family had been sick with the flu and would be staying in Florida for the holidays. And although they were sick, this was out of the ordinary for the usually close family to not hear from them for weeks. When they wanted to speak with the kids or the wife, Megan, Anthony just kept making excuses and insisting everyone was sick and they weren't feeling well enough to speak on the phone. Then eventually, the only source of communication was via text. So Anthony's sister, Chrissy, called the police and detectives went out to the home and noticed that the blinds were closed and there was no answer at the door. There wasn't much that they could do, so they left a card and they told the concerned family that no one was home. The family continued to try to get in contact with Anthony and his wife over the next few weeks to no avail. Now, you may be wondering why Chrissy or another family member just didn't stop over and visit themselves. Well, they were states away living in Connecticut. It was now January 13th, 2020. 15 days went by from when Chrissy called to request a well check, which wasn't successful. Chrissy was now trying to get a hold of her brother, Anthony Tote, his wife, Megan, and their three children, Alec, who was 13, Tyler, 10, and Zoe, age four. 
It was now mid-January, and the communication had ceased altogether, not even a text, not even a, hey, we're feeling better, we still have the flu, just nothing. And at this point, Anthony's family, who were located states away, became increasingly alarmed when they began hearing news that Anthony was in some kind of legal trouble. This is where red flags started popping up big time. It was said that Anthony had been overcharging Medicare and various private insurers for services he never provided at his family-owned physical therapy practice. And they also learned from a neighbor that Anthony was served with eviction papers that remained untouched and attached to his front door. Um, I don't know who I need to speak with. Um, I'm curious if I can have a wellness check done. What's the address for the wellness check? Um, the address for the wellness check is 202 Reserve Place in Celebration. Mm. I had actually called on December 29th, and I had an officer go out um, because I was concerned. Uh, my, my brother and his family, they had all been sick. But there's actually been... Um, more developments. There's actually an active, and I just in, in conversations with my sister, um, you know, my, my sister-in-law was making a comment about, and we just kind of put it all together, about um, basically the world ending on the 28th, and nobody has talked to them. Um, nobody physically talked to my sister-in-law since the 26th of December, and my brother has stopped texting as of Monday. So I don't know if there's a way that somebody can go out. They have, they are renting a place. They're actually being evicted from that property. Um, but that's the last place that we know that they were supposedly at. But they have a condo that's right around the corner as well. Hey, what's your phone number? My phone number is 860-235-6230. Hmm? What's your sister-in-law's name? My sister-in-law's name is Megan, M-E-G-A-N. Mm -hmm. Last name is Tote, T-O-D as in David, T as in Thomas. Mm -hmm. My brother's name is Tony, T-O-N-Y. Mm -hmm. Same last name. They have three kids. And so they think the world is ending and you're worried they're going to like, because of a lot of stuff that's been happening, that there could be something a little bit more happening. I forgot I'm wrong, you say Connecticut? I'm so sorry. Hi, this is Daniel Rue the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Bet Online has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, Bet Online is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Bet Online has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. There were many things happening with the family, the most important of which was the legal trouble Anthony appeared to be in with the federal government. Now, by all accounts, Anthony was a kind and loving father and a bit of a philanthropist in his community. He coached his son's soccer teams, and his friends and patients raved about his compassion and skill at healing while he appeared to have two thriving physical therapy practices located in Colchester, Connecticut. So 
just all around a great guy, someone who was very liked in the community. Now, what no one knew was that Anthony was living far beyond his means and maxing out credit cards and taking out high-interest loans from hard-money lenders to make ends meet. Desperate to keep his problems hidden from his family and continue funding his lifestyle, he began billing patients and their insurance companies for services he was never providing. He was even billing patients for services on days when his business was closed. He recently had three judgments against him, totaling more than half a million dollars. He had been taking out new loans to pay off old loans, falling further and further into debt. Things finally caught up to Anthony around November of 2019 when his businesses were raided by the FBI. The FBI interviewed Anthony and he readily admitted to the fraud and admitted he was solely to blame. And he told his employees who had been left with bounced checks that this was all just a big misunderstanding and he would open back up after Christmas. But that never happened. And Anthony kept making excuses as to why he couldn't return to Connecticut. Anthony had also told the FBI that he would be returning from Florida in December with his lawyer to negotiate a plea deal and turn himself into federal authorities, but that never happened. The Tote family had relocated to Celebration, Florida full-time in 2018 because the weather was better for Megan, who suffered from Lyme disease as a child, and in recent years, it had flared back up. Celebration is a master-planned community created by the Disney Corporation in the 90s to mimic old-style Americana with main streets, cul-de-sacs, and family-oriented parks in each neighborhood. It was eventually sold by Disney, but it maintained its movie set-like charm. The family originally moved into a two-bedroom condo they maintained in Florida, but they quickly grew out of it. And as a result, they rented a larger home about two blocks away with over 3,700 square feet. And there was a pool in the backyard. At first, Anthony was still commuting back and forth each week between the two states. He would spend Monday through Friday in Connecticut working at his physical therapy practice, and he would fly back to Florida on the weekends to spend time with his family. So being that he would be doing this back and forth thing constantly, his sister Chrissy, her mother, and her sisters, who were all still located in Connecticut, were growing increasingly concerned when they didn't see the family over Christmas holiday. What Chrissy didn't know is that her second request for a well check happened to coincide with a federal arrest warrant being served on Anthony. When Anthony had failed to return back to Connecticut as promised, the FBI sought to bring him in involuntarily. Federal agents from the Department of Health and Human Services arrived to serve the arrest warrant on the same day that Chrissy requested a second well check on the family. When authorities arrived at the family residence, they announced themselves, and when they didn't get an answer, they opened the unlocked door and saw Anthony stumbling down the stairs, seemingly confused and unaware of what was happening. Police asked where his family were, and he said that his wife was sleeping upstairs and his children were at a sleepover. But the unmistakable smell of decomposition told another story. Police went upstairs and found Megan dead in the master bedroom, along with the bodies of their two sons, Alec and Tyler. It was clear that the bodies had been there for weeks and were in an advanced state of decomposition. 
When police asked where Zoe was, he insisted she was in the bed sleeping with her mother. Eventually, they did find Zoe's decomposing remains wrapped in blankets at her mother's feet. She no longer resembled a little girl, which is why they missed her on their first few searches. While looking for Zoe, they found the family dog, Breezy. She too was dead, wrapped in blankets and placed in her dog bed. The dog bed was placed next to the bodies of Alec and Tyler. They each had a rosary placed in their crossed hands. It was a scene that looked ritualistic. On the floor surrounding the bodies were empty packages of Benadryl, large hunting knives, pellet guns, a real loaded gun, and used zip ties. On the bed where Megan was laying were rope restraints hanging from the bed, and just like the zip ties, they appeared to have been cut off by someone. Anthony told officers that he had taken an overdose of Benadryl in an attempt to kill himself and join his family in death. Anthony was immediately arrested for the murder of his family, and he was charged with three counts of murder and one count of animal cruelty for the killing of the family dog. Due to his condition, he was then placed on a psychiatric hold. Now, we're going to describe Anthony's physical condition because later it becomes pertinent to the story. At the time of his arrest, Anthony was short and round, weighing well over 300 pounds. He was overweight and had recently been diagnosed with diabetes. While in the hospital, Anthony confessed to killing his entire family one by one. He described methodically drugging them into a deep sleep and then stabbing each one of them in the stomach. After stabbing them, he put his entire body over them and suffocated them until they finally stopped fighting and breathing. He told his doctors that he had also planned to kill himself and join his family in the afterlife. But that wouldn't be his only confession, and it wouldn't be his only version of what happened to his family. Before we continue, we are going to discuss familicide and family annihilators. Familicide is broadly defined as a type of murder or murder-suicide in which a member of the family kills close family members to basically destroy the family unit. Later, we will find out that Anthony wanted investigators to believe that he killed his family due to some pact he had made with his wife to obtain eternal salvation. In the first version of events, he told investigators that the only path to obtain this salvation was through a murder-suicide pact with his entire family. However, it's more likely that his actions can be explained under one of the four types of family annihilators— the first type is the self-righteous annihilator, which can sometimes happen when a family breaks up due to separation or divorce and involves limiting the annihilator's access to his children. Self-righteous killers will also specifically hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family. Often this is done to punish a spouse for leaving him by killing the children in an act of retribution. The next type is the disappointed annihilator, which can happen when the Annihilator's family is undergoing severe financial distress. In this scenario, the Annihilator is often severely depressed and can feel like he can no longer provide for his family and they would all be better off dead than struggling without him. And this type of Annihilator can also be suicidal. Often their self-identity as the breadwinner is central to their version of the ideal family. 
There is also the annihilator who kills for reasons of mortality, such as honor killings or perceived religious failings. This type of annihilator believes his family has let him down or acted in ways to undermine or destroy his version of an ideal family by not following religious or cultural customs of the father. And the last type of annihilator usually kills due to the mental illness and or feelings of paranoia or psychosis. Paranoid annihilators believe the legal system or social services are out to get them or are against them and will break up their family. In other cases, the paranoid annihilator may be suffering from acute mental illnesses, including delusions or hearing voices. Women who fall into this category are often suffering from some form of postpartum psychosis, which is vastly different from postpartum depression. The paranoid killer can also murder their family out of a twisted desire to protect the family. Sometimes these types can overlap. In Anthony's case, he knew that he was heading to prison and there would not be any way to provide for his family while he was gone. His wife, who was also a physical therapist and certified yoga instructor, hadn't worked for years and was a stay-at-home mom. She homeschooled her children and, according to Anthony, also was chronically ill, but she hid it well. Family annihilators are often not known to the criminal justice system, nor have they had mental health services. They are usually described by their family and close friends as loving husbands and good fathers, often holding down high-profile jobs and seen publicly as being successful. So let's now talk a bit about Anthony's past. Anthony had a family history that included severe childhood trauma. And as a child, his father was sent to prison and could no longer provide for his mother, sister, and himself. So it's possible that Anthony believed he was saving his family from this type of embarrassment, struggle, and disgrace. Anthony was born to Robert and Loretta Tote in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. Robert Tote was a high school teacher and a serial cheater, which often caused chaos in his immediate family unit. Robert was even known to sexually prey on some of his students. In addition to dating a 17-year-old, Robert also had a secret mistress in another town. So Robert conceived of a plan to rid himself of his family burden. This plan included the murder of his wife and the possible murder of his children. Robert was prepared to leave that part up to chance. So he hired a former student who had developmental delays and was easily manipulated. He gave the student a key to his home and a loaded gun with strict instructions to kill his wife and any witnesses as collateral damage, if necessary. In 1980, when Anthony was four years old, he woke up to his mother screaming and an intruder on top of her body. She had been shot in the left eye but managed to fight and scare off the intruder, and she survived. Later, when Robert and another student were charged with attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder, Loretta refused to believe that her husband was involved. Robert told Loretta he was sorry that his infidelity led him to not being home and he was unable to protect his family, but he promised that he could never hurt her and he would now remain faithful. The student took a plea deal and was sentenced to four years in prison. Robert was tried and given a 10- to 20-year sentence for attempted murder, but later on appeal, it was reduced to only 5- to 10 years in prison. 
So eventually, Loretta divorced Robert and got remarried to the stepdad who raised Anthony and his sister. The entire family went through years of counseling, but Anthony's emotional scars remained, leaving him with lifelong nightmares. Anthony's family thought this must be the reason behind his actions, and I guess that would make sense, but Anthony had a different explanation. A few days after he was released from the hospital, investigators were finally able to sit down with Anthony and get his version of events. So he began telling investigators that Megan was chronically ill and in tremendous pain. However, she was able to hide the severity of this condition from family and friends. He professed his love repeatedly for Megan. He told investigators that Megan was his high school sweetheart, meant everything to him, and he would always love and honor and obey her. And you see, it's the obey part that led him to kill Megan and his family. So according to Anthony, there were two packs that led to his family's death. One of the packs was to his wife, to never cheat on her and always put her wishes and desires first. He would never do to Megan and his children what his father tried to do to his family when he was young. Yeah, you heard that right. The lack of self-awareness here is astounding. The second pact was a murder-suicide pact that Megan allegedly came up with after surfing around on the internet. According to Anthony, Megan, who was in constant pain, believed in an afterlife. This life had become hard, and she thought going to the next life was now the obvious choice. And it became more and more obvious when Megan began watching videos on the internet about the impending apocalypse. See, Megan casually mentioned to Anthony that they should avoid the whole end-of-the-world thing by, you know, killing everyone and just going directly to the afterlife part. This apparently seemed reasonable to Anthony, so he gathered up the children and put it up to a family vote. Seems logical. Anthony went on to explain how he asked the three children, what would you want to do if one or both of us had to go away? Would you want to stay behind or come with us? Of course, they answered that they wanted to come with their parents. Next, he asked them, well, what would you do if mommy or daddy died? And their responses were, well, we don't want you to die. But if you did die, we'd want to die with you. So keep in mind here, the oldest child is 13, a teenager, and Tyler was 10. Both of these children were old enough to know what death meant and were described by family and teachers as mature for their ages. So it's absolutely ludicrous and improbable to believe that this casual conversation about a family murder-suicide pact would be met with the same enthusiasm as finding out they were going on a Disney cruise. I mean, it's absurd, but here we are. This is Anthony's version of the story. So these discussions allegedly began in November, right around the same time the FBI raided his physical therapy offices. However, Megan had first mentioned this idea back in April. It was just a giant coincidence that the plan took more shape in November after Anthony realized he was going to prison for the Medicare and insurance fraud. I don't know if that's a coincidence. Anthony then admitted he never told Megan anything about the FBI raid because one, it was a mistake, and two, they would already be in salvation by the time the FBI arrived at their door. He also didn't want to add to her burdens. Anthony told the investigators, with all three children, including four-year-old Zoe on board, he began to make preparations. Anthony. 
Anthony told investigators the more he talked to Megan and the more he learned about global consciousness, the more the idea appealed to him. He agreed that rather than suffer in this life, it was better to all die together. He told investigators that he wasn't a violent man, so he turned to an internet forum on gentle, family-friendly ways to kill everyone. That's when he came upon the idea of Benadryl. It sounded peaceful to allow everyone to go to sleep together and wake up in the afterlife. Anthony reiterated that the main reason this solution appealed to him was because Megan wouldn't be in any more pain. And because he was such an amazing husband, he didn't want to prolong her suffering. He also felt duty-bound to love, honor, and obey Megan, even if that meant murdering their children. So, according to Anthony, after they both settled on a peaceful death by Benadryl, Megan made a Benadryl pudding pie, and they served it to their children. Unfortunately, everyone woke up the next morning a little tired, but otherwise healthy. So they meditated and then decided on a sacrifice ritual that they used to do in the olden days, which involved exsanguigation. Exsanguigation is death by draining someone's blood. And so he decided that the sleep drug in combination with the bloodletting would be a solid plan. He found out that samurai warriors used to choose an honorable death or ritualistic suicide by disembowelment and blood loss after plunging a knife into their stomachs. This method was supposed to sever the abdominal aortic artery, which should painlessly kill them in a matter of minutes. He couldn't remember what day his family died, but he did know that he wanted them to attend their last holiday musical concert together, which took place on the 15th of December. Both Alec and Tyler were extremely musically talented, and later police would find the program for that recital on the floor of the family's minivan. Anthony was adamant that the entire family was killed before Christmas, which is why they hadn't yet put up a Christmas tree or bought the children presents. However, there were shipping boxes filled with unopened and wrapped gifts for the children sent from their family in Connecticut. Now, Anthony's sister thought that she spoke with Megan on the 26th, but later authorities believed that it was Anthony texting from Megan's phone, pretending to be her. With the final plan set in place, he went about preparing for their deaths by purchasing two large hunting knives, zip ties, and rope. In this first version of events, Anthony set his alarm for 11.30 at night so all the children would be deep in their Benadryl-induced sleep. Investigators began to question his story because if Megan and he had plans to kill their children, why would they go to sleep at all that night? Why wouldn't they stay up and do it long before 11.30? However, if Anthony were lying about Megan's involvement and was acting alone, then setting the alarm for 11.30 would make more sense. That way, he could carry out their murders one by one without the others finding out. There is one more fact that goes on to the theory that Anthony acted alone without Megan's involvement. When Chrissy called 911 the second time for a well check, she said her and her sisters were putting things together. They mentioned that Megan had told them that the world was ending on the 28th. Police surmised it was more than likely that it was Anthony on Megan's phone texting them that the world was ending on the 28th since Megan and the kids had likely died shortly after the children's Christmas concert. 
Now, what we are about to describe is so disturbing to say the least, and it's very hard for me to even say out loud, so bear with me. It took me many times to go over this. Now, this is all according to Anthony describing what happened the night he killed his family. He explained to investigators that he killed Zoe first since she would be the easiest to kill, and once he started with her, he wouldn't be able to stop. Zoe was sleeping upstairs in her room, and Alec was also sleeping upstairs in his room, and Tyler was sleeping downstairs in the library. Meg allegedly walked into Zoe's room and then walked back out into her room to wait, and she told him to let her know when he was done. He said that he sat on Zoe's bed for two to three hours because it was a tough decision and he had to work up the nerve to end her life. Megan kept coming back into the room and asked him what was taking so long. Finally, the thoughts of salvation and saving her soul took over and he got the courage to kill her. He still thought the easiest way to kill her would be a quick little stab in her abdominal aortic artery. He didn't know if he punctured her or not, but he saw the little mark on her stomach made by the knife. Now, we should mention that Zoe was too decomposed to determine if she had been stabbed or not at the time of her autopsy. After he stabbed Zoe, she began to move around a little, so he put his hand over her mouth so she wouldn't wake the other children, and then placed a pillow over her face. Then he laid a pillow across her body with all 300 plus pounds of his weight on top of her face until she stopped fighting. He told investigators he believed the entire thing took less than 15 minutes, and she only kicked and fought back for two to three minutes. He said it felt like forever, so it was hard to gauge the time. Next, he and Megan sat together for a little while and meditated before they both entered Alec's room. They were worried about Alec fighting back, so Megan had to hold down his feet. She held his feet, and Anthony used a knife to stab Alec in his abdomen. The autopsy showed that Alec had been stabbed twice in his abdomen, likely post-mortem, which means after death. But Anthony was adamant that he stabbed all of the children when they were alive despite the autopsy findings. After he stabbed Alec, he began kicking and fighting and was able to turn himself over. So Anthony placed a pillow over his head so he couldn't rise up and applied pressure with his weight until he suffocated. He said that Alec really fought hard and Megan couldn't handle it anymore and left halfway through it. The entire time he was suffocating Alec, he was focused on keeping him quiet because he didn't want Tyler to wake up. He said that Tyler was his strongest and fastest child, and he was very concerned that if Tyler figured out what was going on, he might escape the home and alert a neighbor. He couldn't remember if he stabbed Tyler once or twice, but he did use the same knife that he used on the other two children, stabbing him at least once through the belly button. He was under the impression that this was the best way to puncture the aortic artery. Tyler fought back the hardest and had the more extensive injuries. While he was suffocating Tyler, Megan was outside the door doing meditations to make sure the kids would all be together in their afterlife. He said they both loved their children, and while it was a difficult task, it was more important to give them salvation and prevent even worse suffering here on Earth. Megan told him that all of the killings had to be done before the sun came up, but he wasn't sure why that was a rule. After Tyler was dead, they both allegedly went up to the master bedroom and began talking about their next steps. They decided that they wanted their dog to go with them too, so Anthony wrapped her up in a blanket, 
and held her mouth and snout closed until she peacefully passed away. Although investigators think that it's more likely he killed the dog first so that the dog wouldn't be barking while he was killing the children and alert the others in the house. Then he placed her in the dog bed next to where he would eventually place the children. There were some stab wounds found on the dog, but Anthony denied stabbing their dog, Breezy. Now, Anthony's description of how Megan went seems very unlikely, but he went on to explain that she wanted to go next, so she began drinking wine and taking sleep-easy pills. Then he said that Megan calmly stabbed herself in the stomach. Anthony allegedly told her that it should take only 10 minutes to bleed out, but 45 minutes later, Megan was still hanging on. So she asked for some Benadryl and drank a bottle to speed up the process. He said that he kept walking around the house and coming back to check on her as a loving husband would. And at some point he thought that she had passed away, but she suddenly sat up in bed startling him and said, I'm still here. She tried more Benadryl and when that didn't work, she tried again calmly as if she wasn't in any pain, decided to stab herself in the liver. And he showed her where to stab herself, and she took two hands, pushed the knife in until he heard a little click. And he thought that meant she had pushed through something fatal. Then she pulled the knife out, and he held her and waited for her to die. Hours went by, and nothing happened. She was still hanging on. He left the room for a little while, and then when he came back, she was sitting up again in her bed and was cleaning her stab wound with a towel. He explained that she was complaining about how long it was taking and that she demanded that he end it now. She angrily told him to place a pillow over her face and end it immediately. And he said he didn't know if he could do it, but she told him, if you love me, then you can do this because I want to be with my babies. Now, we should note that according to the autopsy report, neither of Megan's stab wounds could have been self-inflicted based on the angle of the entry of the blade. And that whole explanation just makes my eyes roll. Anthony absolutely had to have stabbed her. So his version of events where he was able to kill each of his children because he was an obedient husband, but reluctant to harm Megan because he loved her so much is as unlikely as it sounds. In Anthony's version of events, he told Megan he would suffocate her only if she promised not to fight him because if she fought him, he wouldn't be able to handle it. He reminded investigators how much he loved his wife and promised to love, honor, and obey her, even under extreme circumstances, because he was just that amazing of a husband. So he suffocated Megan and then followed her instructions to wait a few days before joining them. When he waited for his turn to go, he moved all of his children's bodies into the master bedroom with Megan and placed a rosary in their hands. Then he tried to kill himself and join them, but found it was much harder to do than it sounds. He then went to three different stores and bought as much Benadryl as he could get his hands on. He tried overdosing on over-the-counter sleeping pills and bottles of Benadryl for days, but he would keep waking up a few days later. He also tried hanging himself, and despite having a loaded real gun in the house, he decided to try to kill himself with a pellet gun. He said he wasn't violent and he couldn't bring himself to, quote, eat a gun, end quote. 
Instead, he shot himself with a pellet gun in the liver and in the heart, but nothing happened. Next, he tried razor blades to his wrist. And photos taken of his body after his arrest, there were scabbed over scratches on his wrist and bruising on his hands, arms, and legs. He also had scratches on his neck, which could have occurred while Megan and the children were fighting back. Although, he said he got those scratches when he placed zip ties around his neck in an attempt to strangle himself. But he couldn't get enough compression on his carotid artery because his neck was too big. Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plug or Chris Hart. BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts. Now, as we discussed earlier, there were zip ties that had been used and then cut open all around the bedroom floor. And investigators believed that Megan had nothing to do with helping Anthony kill their children. They told him that his story didn't make sense. Megan had been pregnant in September and had suffered a miscarriage that allegedly devastated her. Yet, according to Anthony, she had been talking about this pact to salvation since April. They asked Anthony if she hadn't miscarried, would she still have gone through with the plans to kill the family? This left him speechless for a few minutes before he suddenly said yes, she would because she knew that there would be more suffering for that baby here on Earth. This was Anthony's first indication that investigators weren't buying his story. They told Anthony that they thought it was more likely that all of those used zip ties were used on the children. They were placed around their hands and legs to keep the two older boys from effectively fighting back and escaping. The restraints on the beds, they theorized, were used on Megan while he stabbed her in the abdomen and suffocated her. Anthony said he used those restraints to try to hang himself. He told investigators that they were wrong and he attempted to kill himself at least eight times. He was surprised when the authorities asked him if he used arsenic on any of them. He said that he tried to buy some from Mexico, but he couldn't get it delivered. When they told him that they found arsenic in his garage, he seemed disappointed and blurted out that he would have preferred to use the arsenic instead. When discussing what he did in the days following the murder of his family, he listed out his errands. In addition to trying to buy more Benadryl to kill himself, he also made a special trip to return some new clothes they had purchased for Alec since he wouldn't be needing them anymore. And when they asked why they purchased them, if they knew that they were all going to the afterlife, he said they weren't sure about timing. And just a note, investigators never found any journal writings or notes from Megan where she talked about saving the souls of her children through a murder-suicide pact. However, Anthony did mention that there was a suicide note written by both him and Megan explaining why they were all dead. Except it wasn't signed by either of them, and when they asked which computer they could find it on, he mentioned he air-printed it from his phone. Other than one statement from Chrissy during the 911 call where she said Megan mentioned the world was ending on 1228, there was no other evidence that Megan was a participant in this plan at all. It was all looking more and more likely that she was a victim along with her children. Toxology did prove that Megan had consumed wine and sleeping pills and Benadryl, 
The official cause of death for Megan and her children was homicidal violence of unspecified means along with diphenhydramine toxicity, which is the drug commonly known as Benadryl. One of the reasons they couldn't determine the exact cause of death was because of the state of the bodies. When they were found, they were all partially mummified. Anthony had brought in dehumidifiers into the room and scented candles. Megan's body revealed blood in her abdomen, and she was the only one they were sure had been stabbed while she was still alive. Now, shortly after making this detailed confession Anthony recanted, he suddenly had memory loss and could only recall waking up in his jail cell. He had no recollection of the confession he made to his doctors or the confession he gave to law enforcement. He stated he must have been under the influence of Benadryl toxicity, which wasn't true because he had been in the hospital for days and all of the Benadryl was out of his system at the time of his confession. In a recorded phone call with his sister Chrissy, he told her that he had to be careful because his phone calls were being recorded. However, he wanted to prepare her for the things she would hear in the future about his wife, Megan. He told her that, quote, I couldn't stop this because I wasn't there. There were multiple attempts, just so you know, multiple attempts in the last over a time frame. There have been attempts with salvation in mind, which is why this time I was stuck down here trying to handle things, end quote. Anthony was hinting that he couldn't leave Florida because he was worried his children weren't safe with their mother. Yet, he never sought to get Megan help or suggested that a murder-suicide pact wasn't in the best interest of the family. Even though Anthony knew that there was an intense interest in his case and all of his letters and all of his phone calls were discoverable by the press, he wrote his estranged father a 31-page letter that more than hinted Megan was responsible. It outright accused her of killing all of the children by herself. He also had a long list of people he intended to sue since he knew he didn't belong in jail. Now, we have so much more to this story, but this is where we're going to end our episode for today. Can I just say, it's mind-blowing that we interact with monsters like this on a daily basis. I mean, this guy was a physical therapist treating many people in the area, and he had it in him to kill his family one by one. It's just mind-blowing. Now, next week, we will bring you the conclusion to this case where we will cover Anthony's letter to his estranged father. And we will also cover Anthony's trial where he took the stand and gave a third and final version of how his family died. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be with you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plot or Chris Hart. BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 